0: Many Americans are asking themselves what can be done after the shooting in Texas. Despite broad support for background checks and red flag laws, action at the state and national levels is uncertain. We'll hear what U.S. polling says about the country's attitude toward guns and gun policy. It's Thursday, May 26th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead for many of the young people who've opened fire in schools. The path to violence has common traits. Psychologists and researchers have developed a body of study on the topic. As Russia's war in Ukraine enters its fourth month, European countries are scrambling to wean themselves off Russian gas. The Baltic nation of Lithuania took steps years ago to reduce its dependency.
1: Because we are closer, because we are smaller because we have been occupied for 40 years by the Soviets.
0: More on Lithuania's journey to energy independence coming up. It's 4.01.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi saying. Instead of celebrating the end of another school year, many families in the small, predominantly Latino community of Uvalde now have to plan funerals. NPR's John Burnett tells us more about the preparations underway, Two days after a young gunman, a member of that community, killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school.
1: President Biden and the First Lady are headed here. The funeral home that happens to be across the street from Robb Elementary School is planning back-to-back funerals. The school system must reshuffle plans for senior graduation. Meanwhile, students like Gabrielle Miller, a 16-year-old sophomore at Uvalde High School, are processing their trauma.
3: It's nothing like any person should ever have to think about or think about having to go through. You don't know what to do. You don't know if it's going to be you that's next.
1: Schools throughout the region and the state have beefed up security in the wake of the Uvalde tragedy. John Burnett, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas.
2: The White House has just confirmed that President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will travel to Uvalde on Sunday parents are looking for answers about what happened but have been hearing conflicting information authorities confirm the gunman salvador ramos shot his grandmother in the face she survived and is in the hospital they say he drove her pickup outside the school fired at two bystanders across the street then entered the school then there were reports that he was confronted by an officer he'd wounded victor escalon a regional at the regional director at the texas department of public safety said not so
4: he walked in unobstructed initially So from the grandmother's house, to the bar to the school, into the school, he was not confronted by anybody.
2: Police are also facing questions about why it took reportedly 40 minutes to an hour between the time Salvador Ramos arrived at the school and when he was killed by officers. Anger over mass shootings in America schools looms over the National Rifle Association's annual gathering, which was pre-scheduled to be held in Houston starting tomorrow. Now turning to Wall Street. U.S. stocks taking a solid bounce as several major retailers deliver strong earnings reports. The Dow is up 517 points. NPR's David Gura has more.
5: Macy's did better than Wall Street expected in the first quarter, and so did Williams-Sonoma, a contrast to what we saw last week from Walmart and Target. Dollar Tree and Dollar General forecast even stronger sales in the months to come because of economic uncertainty and high inflation. Tech stocks, including Apple and Meta, Facebook's parent company, also traded higher. Wall Street is on track to end the week in positive territory for the first time in a while. The Dow has fallen for the last eight weeks, and the Nasdaq and the S&P the last seven. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
2: The Dow closes up 1.6%. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is one step closer to allowing people in the country without documentation to obtain a state driver's license. Today, the House and Senate both passed an immigration license bill. Two more procedural votes are required and expected this afternoon. Backers say the bill will make roads safer by increasing the number of people who are properly trained to drive. There is enough support in both chambers to override a potential veto from Governor Charlie Baker. He is opposed to the bill because he says it could lead to voter fraud. Federal officials from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration are involved in the investigation into the death of a National Grid worker this morning. The 35-year-old man was working on an electrical box in a parking lot on Salem Street in Medford when he was electrocuted. Three Medford police officers who responded were treated and released for smoke inhalation. National grid says it's doing all it can to support the family of the worker who was killed? Massachusetts could really use some rain. New federal data from the U.S. Drought Monitor show nearly a quarter of the state entered moderate drought this week. That includes Boston and large swaths of the North and South Shores and some of the Western suburbs as well. Mayor Michelle Wu of Boston is among those celebrating graduates in the city this week. This morning, she gave an address at Bunker Hill Community College. She congratulated the accomplishments of students despite challenging circumstances.
6: Today isn't a celebration of something you've been gifted or given, but what you have earned. Especially against the backdrop of all the other things going on in our world right now, to be sitting where you are sitting today is an impressive and incredible achievement.
0: This was the school's first in-person graduation in roughly three years. 1,300 students graduated from 95 different degree and certificate programs this year. In the forecast, 72 degrees now. Beautiful afternoon going. Clouding up tonight, though, should be right about 60 degrees. Some gusty winds tonight. Cloudy again tomorrow, but should reach all the way to 81 degrees. Then possibly showers on Saturday. Sunday sunshine up in the high 70s both days over the weekend.
7: 72 degrees now in Boston. That 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. This is
8: All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
9: And I'm Elsa Chang. We're still learning the names of the victims of the mass shooting that took place in a fourth grade classroom in Uvalde, Texas, on Tuesday, Piece by piece, we're learning a little bit more about who they were, what they liked to do, who they loved, and who loved them. We're going to take the next few minutes to say their names out loud and share some small details about each of them.
8: 44-year-old Eva Moreles was one of two fourth-grade teachers who died. She's remembered as an adventurous and loving mother and wife. Moreles
9: shared a classroom with Irma Garcia. The mother of four had taught at the school for 23 years. One of her students, 10-year-old Javier Lopez, was described by his family as a very bubbly boy who loved dancing with his brothers and his mom. He was looking forward to a summer of swimming. Alexandria Ania Rubio
8: was 10 and a straight-A student. A photo of her, beaming as she holds up her honor roll certificate, was shared on Facebook by her mother. Her mother also posted that she had no idea when she dropped her little girl off on Tuesday that it would be a final goodbye. The grandfather
9: of Uzaya Garcia called the eight-year-old the sweetest little boy that I have ever known. Grandfather and grandson had spent the summer together learning to play football, Leila Salazar, loved to swim and dance to TikTok videos, her father said. Each day on the way to school, the pair of them would listen to Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. The family of Amari Jo Garza
8: says she was a happy kid. She had just turned 10 and made the honor roll. She was also an artist who liked to draw and paint and sculpt with clay. Her grandmother said whenever she saw
9: flowers, she would draw them. Ellie Garcia, also 10 love to dance, play sports, and spend time with her family. Firecracker is the word Jackie
8: Cazares' family used to describe the nine-year-old. She had a voice, they said, and didn't like bullies, and she didn't like kids being picked on. Her second cousin and good friend, Annabel
9: Rodriguez, was also killed. Cousins JC Carmela Luovanos and Halia Nicole Silguero died alongside each other. They were cousins. Haley's mother told Univision that she did not want to go to school Tuesday and seemed to sense something bad was going to happen. Those are just some of the names of the people shot and killed at Robb
8: Elementary School on Tuesday.
9: So what can be done? Many Americans are asking themselves that question in the wake of the mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas that killed 19 children and two adults. But despite broad support for measures like background checks and red flag laws, action at the state and national levels is far from certain. Joining us now to discuss the political stumbling blocks that keep gun legislation from passing are NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason, and Texas newsroom reporter Julian Aguilar. Welcome to both of you. Happy to be here.
10: Thanks for having me on.
9: Julian, I want to start with you. Um, In the wake of what happened in Uvalde, what kinds of conversations about gun control are you hearing right now in Texas?
10: The conversations are predictable, and I say that because it's similar to what happened after previous mass shootings, including the 2019 shooting in El Paso, which I covered. Democrats immediately call for gun control, and Republicans say that if the legislature passes more strict gun laws then they're hurting law-abiding citizens. Uh, just listen to what the state's attorney general, Ken Paxson said on Fox News yesterday.
11: There is a law against murder. He's not going to follow a single gun law if he's willing to violate a murder law.
10: And yesterday, during a press conference to give more details on the shooting, Governor Greg Abbott pointed out Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, cities that have tougher gun laws on the books, but laws that he says doesn't work. And that's why he said Texas doesn't need more gun laws. Abbott focused on problems with mental health during the press conference, problems with access to it in Uvalde. This is what he said yesterday.
12: Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period.
10: It's important to note that at the same time, Abbott pointed out that the gunman did not have mental health issues as far as he knew. And after the El Paso shooting, Abbott's focus on mental health got pushback from mental health experts who said that's not the sole issue that's to blame.
9: I mean, after previous mass shootings in Texas, can you talk about what the movement for gun control has looked like in your state? Like, how has that movement evolved?
10: It, you know, it, it's it's evolved over time, but um, again, there's been little done at the legislature. So last uh, June, Governor Abbott signed seven laws that expanded gun rights, actually. Um, this was just after the El Paso Walmart shooting and the one in Odessa a few weeks later. So those two shootings were claimed about 30 lives. And one of the laws that the governor signed was um, a, a law that allows people to carry, legally carry handguns without licenses. And Abbott said that then at the time that Texas will always be a leader in defending the Second Amendment. After the Santa Fe school shooting, which happened in 2018 and left 10 people dead, Abbott called on state lawmakers to consider a red flag law that would allow state courts to take away firearms from people who are a danger to themselves or others. Um, And eventually he backed away. Uh, The legislature did pass laws that were more focused on mental health resources and giving teachers more access to guns on public school campuses. And just after the Uvalde shooting, you know, the lieutenant governor instead, he told Fox News that maybe it would stop someone if the targets were hardened, like if schools had just one door. So, I mean, in the aftermath, you know, gun control legislation can't even be passed in Texas until January 2023. That's when the state legislature gavels back in for their regular session. That's unless the governor calls a special session for gun control, which he likely won't.
9: And Mara, I want to bring you in here now, because when it comes to federal gun control legislation, what have been the hurdles in the Senate? The hurdles in the Senate are simple
13: math. If you don't have 10 Republicans, you're not going to pass anything. And in the past, uh, even the most sincere bipartisan efforts, like the one that Pat Toomey and uh, Joe Manchin tried to pass the most incremental kinds of reform, like background checks, have failed. So Democrats say, why would it be different this time if it wasn't different after Sandy Hook or Parkland or El Paso? So Democrats are pretty pessimistic, even though there is yet another bipartisan effort underway right now, this time with... Republican Susan Collins of Maine and Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut. Uh, And what's happened since the last time the Senate tried and failed is that guns have become even more entrenched as the bedrock part of the Republican base identity. In other words, for white rural Republican voters... Other than maybe abortion and the big lie, I can't think of a single issue that's more central to their partisan identity than Mm. the Second Amendment. Now, Joe Biden argued the other day the Second Amendment is not absolute. And it's true. We already have gun control in this country. You can't go out and buy a machine gun, a fully automatic weapon. Uh, So we have gun control. We're just arguing about how much of it we want.
9: Okay, so I get that the Second Amendment is central to the Republican identity, but aren't they facing any kind of pressure to do something on gun control? Well, maybe, but remember, Republicans
13: are relatively insulated from majority public opinion, especially on this issue. You know, 88% of voters tell pollsters they're for background checks. 67% of voters say they're for an assault weapons ban. But because we have a system that advantages minority rule in the United States Senate, Republicans don't really have to cater to that majority opinion. You know, the Senate is an institution that was designed by the founders to protect the minority party's rights, but over time, because of the way the population has sorted itself out, we pretty much have minority rule. Right now, 50 Democrats in the Senate represent 44 million more people than the 50 Republicans. And that means that Republicans really don't run any political risk for voting against popular gun control measures.
9: Well, if Senate Democrats are unable to pass anything, I mean, what can Democrats do outside of the legislative process?
13: Well, there might be some more executive orders that the president can sign. What Democrats say they don't want to do is just give in and give up. That's why that onion headline is so powerful. You know, the satirical magazine, quote, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Uh, Democrats Hmm. say even if you can't pass something, it's worth advocating for it, fighting for it, bringing things to the floor to force Republicans to say they're against universal background checks and there are a lot of Democrats who actually think guns are a cultural issue, the rare cultural issue that can work for Democrats because majorities of Americans are for these gun control measures. Well, Julian, when
9: it comes to Texas specifically, historically, what have attitudes towards gun control been like according to polls?
10: Right. Well, polling shows that the Texans opinions vary depending on on the type of gun in question. So. Overall, generally, about forty three percent of people said uh, gun laws should be more strict, and that 's according to a Texas politics poll by the University of Texas that was uh, released in February of this year and that number is down over the last few years. Um, you know for example, in two thousand seventeen it was fifty one percent and If you break it down by party it 's pretty predictable. Democrats say gun laws should be more strict, you know more than eighty percent while um, only about twelve uh, percent of Republicans say the same thing. Um, and the poll last year, uh, the Texas Tribune University of Texas conducted showed that a solid majority of Texas voters, 59 percent, uh, didn't think adults should be allowed to carry handguns. Uh, so that specifically dealt with handguns. But long rifles uh, have been legal to, to purchase and carry without a permit in Texas for decades now. So that's where this, the split is, is depending on what type of gun it is.
9: That was Texas Newsroom reporter Julián Aguilar and NPR National Political Correspondent Maralice and thank you to both of you. Thank
13: you.
10: Thank you.
8: With the grocery store, the gas station, and just affording a place to live, Americans are feeling the pinch of rising prices basically everywhere. Now the Federal Reserve is trying to cool inflation, but without chilling the whole economy. How to understand inflation in the U.S.? This afternoon on NPR's Daily News Podcast. Consider this. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Nina Totenberg on the big decisions expected to be made public this summertime from the U.S. Supreme Court. On Wall Street, an upswing for the major markets today. The Dow rose for a fifth straight day, up more than one and a half percent, or five hundred seventeen points, to close at thirty two thousand six hundred thirty seven. S and P brought in two percent to close at four thousand fifty eight. Nasdaq surged nearly two and three quarters percent to close at eleven thousand seven hundred
7: forty one. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by SunBug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at icaboston.org. Fewer people in Massachusetts applied for unemployment last week. Just over 4,000 people
0: filed new claims. That's down just over a percent, and it mirrors a trend nationally. Across the entire U.S., new unemployment claims dropped 3 percent last week. Economists say these levels of new claims are relatively low and reflect strong job security. This is WBUR. Business News comes up from Marketplace at 6.30 tonight.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zeven Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com. The WBR Gala Auction is live. Go behind the scenes at Zoo New England.
8: Bid
14: now at wbr.org slash gala.
0: Clouds moving in tonight. Temperatures about 64. Tomorrow, cloudy pretty much all day long. Warmer, though, topping out at 81 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at Fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn
9: more at avast.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Since
8: a draft of the decision that could overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked earlier this month, it's easy to forget that a decision has not yet, in fact, been rendered from the Supreme Court and that there are a slate of other decisions, including on gun regulations, likely to come down soon. One person well-tuned into the Supreme Court, as always, is our legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. Hi, Nina. Hi, there. What gun case or cases are before
6: the court? The court said 13 years ago that As a citizen, you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. The question in this term's case is whether you have a right to carry a gun outside your home. At issue in the case is a New York law that restricts licenses to carry a gun outside the home to people going hunting or shooting or to those who can demonstrate a special need for self-protection like a messenger carrying cash. Most states don't have such strict laws, but still, some 80 million people do live in states that, like New York, limit concealed carry licenses. And at the oral arguments, it looked as though the conservative majority very likely will strike down the New York law. Nina, how did the court get here? Well, just to recap a little history here. In 2008, the Supreme Court ruled for the first time that the Second Amendment right to bear arms guarantees the right to have a gun in your home. But after that, for all practical purposes, when it came to gun regulation, it was crickets at the court. The justices refused to hear almost all the cases brought by gun rights advocates. Was there a reason for that? Well, at that point, the justices were closely divided on these questions, and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who had provided the fifth and decisive vote in 2008, was generally in favor of reasonable gun regulations. And for all I know, Chief Justice Roberts may have been, too. But now Kennedy has retired, and there's a sixth justice, supermajority, on the court, meaning that the conservatives can lose one vote and still prevail. What's more, the three Trump appointees, when they were lower court judges, were generally sympathetic to the arguments put forth by gun rights advocates. And this term, we may see just how sympathetic. Nina, turning back to this term's Roe versus Wade abortion decision, what do we know today about where it is? Well, as you well know, all signs are that the court is on the verge of overturning Roe. And if it does do that, abortions will almost certainly become illegal in about half the country immediately or close to immediately. Justice Alito's draft dated February 10th and its unprecedented leak earlier this month tell that story quite vividly. But word is that there has not been a subsequent opinion circulated, or at least not as of a week or two ago, which suggests that Chief Justice Roberts is likely writing a competing draft and that the other members of the conservative wing, in deference to him, are waiting to see that before they commit themselves formally to all of Alito's language. Are there any major cases that are less high profile that you're waiting to hear about? Well, there are a couple of huge regulatory cases, maybe the most significant in terms of climate change, is a case that essentially tests whether the Environmental Protection Agency can create a plan of regulations and incentives aimed at reducing carbon emissions from coal-fired plants under the Clean Air Act. And there are also a couple of important religion cases. The most prominent was brought by a high school football coach who claims he has the right to pray on the 50-yard line at school. And there are a couple of important immigration cases, both brought by some Republican states seeking to keep in place Trump administration regulations that the Biden administration has moved to revoke. Do you have any sense of when these other decisions may come down? Nope, just by the end of the term, which usually is pretty much at the beginning of full-fledged summer. (laughs) NPR's Nina Totenberg, thank you. Thank you. Newtown,
9: Parkland, Santa Fe, and now Uvalde. There are striking similarities among all of these school shootings, and after every one of them, there has been a tendency to ask, how do we prevent the next one? Well, as NPR's Cory Turner
16: reports, for years, school safety experts have been pretty clear on the answers. Matthew Mayer has been studying school violence since before Columbine. He's part of a big group of researchers who started putting out position papers back in 2006 about why school shootings happen. The question today, Mayer says, is not why, it's... Do we want to change? Or
12: is this acceptable to us? and we have to start being more honest with ourselves.
16: From Mayer, a professor at Rutgers, that honesty has to begin with gun safety policy. There's a broad consensus from school safety experts that arming teachers is not good policy. Mayer and his colleagues have called for universal background checks and banning assault-style weapons.
12: We don't let people buy hand grenades. We don't let people buy
16: bazookas and other instruments of war. In its own report on school shootings, the US Secret Service also flagged the importance of gun storage safety. In half the shootings they studied, the gun used was either readily accessible at home or not really secured. Now to the things researchers say schools can actually control. There's been a lot of movement in recent years toward hardening schools, like adding police officers and metal detectors, but Otis Johnson Jr who heads the Center for Safe and Healthy Schools at Johns Hopkins, says schools should focus on softening.
17: Our first preventative strategy should be to make sure kids are respected, that they feel connected and belong in schools.
16: That means being truly responsive to the social and emotional needs of students, working to build kids' skills around conflict resolution, stress management and empathy for their classmates.
18: These are things that we learn And if your parents didn't have these skills and tools or all of them you can't give what you don't have
16: scarlett lewis founded choose love for schools after the shooting at sandy hook elementary school 10 years ago choose love is a social emotional curriculum being used in thousands of schools i interviewed her back in 2019 and she told me how much she loves working with kids to build kinder safer schools
18: when i was handing out bracelets and i said what's your favorite character value and they said without hesitation, forgiveness. And I'm like, really? Why forgiveness? Because you can let it go, because it feels good.
16: The idea is these skills can help reduce all sorts of unwanted behaviors, including fighting and bullying. In its report, the Secret Service found most of the school attackers they studied had been bullied. Jackie Nowicki has led multiple school safety investigations at the Government Accountability Office and she says her team found a few things closely linked to making school environments safer.
19: Anti-bully training for staff and teachers, adult supervision, things like hall monitors and mechanisms to anonymously report hostile behaviors.
16: The Secret Service, as well as school safety experts, also recommend schools implement what they call a threat assessment model, where a team of trained staff, including an administrator, a counselor, or school psychologist, and a law enforcement representative work together to identify and support students in crisis before they hurt others. Which reminds me of something Scarlett Lewis told me back in 2019.
18: There are only
16: two kinds of people in the world, good people, and good people in pain. And from Lewis, that's a powerful thing to say. Her six year old son, Jesse, was murdered alongside many of his classmates at Sandy Hook Elementary. Corey Turner, NPR News.
8: This is
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Wednesday, June 1st for a city-space conversation with dancer, choreographer, and MacArthur fellow Michelle Dorrance. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Red Sox are on the road in Chicago for another game with the White Sox tonight. Sox will induct more members into their Hall of Fame ceremony tonight at Fenway Park. The inductees are David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez, and former catcher and coach Rich Gedman. Also being inducted, our early 20th century pitcher Bill Deneen and former general manager Dan Duquette. This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees now in Boston at 430.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm. Organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Boston, Watertown, Brighton, and more. Redfirefarm.com and Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring, online.merrimack.edu.
20: How do we make sense of the vast amounts of data that's out there in order to benefit people who really need it? That's where the promise of AI really comes in. I'm
21: Meghna Chakrabarti. Smarter
8: Health, Artificial Intelligence, and the Future of American Healthcare, a special series from On Point
22: starts Friday at 10 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's
23: NPR news station, funded in part by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Congressional Democrats continue to push for stricter gun control laws in the wake of the mass shooting that left 19 children and two adults dead at an elementary school in Texas this week. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy says the only way to advance gun reform is through bipartisan compromise.
24: We're trying to figure out a process by which over the next week, Republicans and Democrats, a group of us, can sit down and try to hammer out a compromise. I will tell you, I think the chances are you know, well less than 50-50 that we will find that compromise because there are probably four or five Republicans who would fairly easily support some common sense measures. Tougher to find the next five that would get you to 60.
23: Legislation that would strengthen gun control laws would require 60 votes to bypass a Republican filibuster in the Senate. Secretary of State Antony Blinken delivered a speech outlining the Biden administration's policies toward China. NPR's Emily Fang reports the speech emphasized preparing the U.S. for competition with China, but not conflict.
25: Secretary Blinken said China had become more repressive under its current leader, Xi Jinping, and he vowed to partner with allies to counter China's party-state model of governance with America's democratic principles.
26: Even as President Putin's war continues, we will remain focused on the most serious long-term challenge to the international order, and that's posed by the People's Republic of China.
25: He also said, we do not seek to transform China's political system, but the future belongs to those who believe in freedom. Blinken exhorted the U.S. to invest in building up domestic supply chains in technology and manufacturing, such as semiconductors. And he said the U.S. continued to welcome Chinese talent and students in the U.S. Emily Fang, NPR News.
23: Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up 516 points. The Nasdaq up 305. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA Board of Directors today approved the agency's $9.6 billion five-year capital plan. It includes upgrades to vehicles and infrastructure. The plan also funds more than 450 projects aimed at making the transit system safer. WBUR's Daryl C. Murphy has more.
27: The board's approval comes as the Federal Transit Administration is inspecting the T over safety concerns. A number of incidents over the last several months have resulted in injuries or death. General Manager Steve Povtak says investigators are conducting site visits and the T is open to their feedback.
1: This is really an opportunity for us as an organization to learn and to get a thorough assessment of the places where we may be doing well in terms of safety, but I think more importantly, the places where we have a deficit.
27: Poptak says a report from the FTA's inspection is likely to come during the summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy.
0: Attorney General Maura Healey is warning Massachusetts families to beware of scams related to the nationwide baby formula shortage. Today, her office issued an advisory that recommends parents shop at trusted retailers or call their pediatrician to see if they have a product in stock. If you buy online, Healy says, you should conduct an Internet search with the seller's name and the words scam or complaint to see if there are any reports of problems. She also asked that people call her office if they suspect a scam or a product with an exorbitant price. A July 4th tradition will return to Boston for the first time since 2019. Today, the Boston Pops announced its annual concert and fireworks spectacular will be held on the Esplanade on the Charles River this year. The event was canceled in 2020 because of the pandemic. Last year it was held at Tanglewood in the Berkshires. The forecast is coming up.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by seventeen seventy six at the ART, a revolutionary revival of the Tony Award winning musical now through July twenty fourth. More at American Repertory Theatre dot org. NBU School of Social Work. Offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu SSW.
0: Pretty glorious weather this afternoon. Overnight tonight we should see clouds move in. Fairly mild, right about 60 degrees. Should stay cloudy tomorrow, but inch all the way up to 81 degrees. And then over the weekend, a mixed picture. Showers on Saturday, then sunshine on Sunday, up in the high 70s both days. 72 degrees now in the Boston area at 435.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning, from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's Let'smakeaplan.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More
8: at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington.
9: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Details are continuing to emerge about how events unfolded at Robb Elementary School on Tuesday. One thing we do know, the shooter was 18. So we wanted to take a step back and look at what's become a familiar pattern. A well-armed young person with a troubled history taking out their rage on others. What can be done to divert potential shooters from a violent path? NPR's mental health reporter, Ritu Chatterjee, joins us now to talk about that. Hi, Ritu. Hi Elsa. So, do researchers who who study violent behavior, do they see like a a profile that they can point to when it comes to young people who might one day become shooters?
28: No, there isn't a profile, but there are certainly uh, many similarities between school shooters, whether we're talking about Columbine, Parkland, and now Uvalde. And there's often a range of situational factors that have played out over time, putting a person at a higher risk of getting on that path to a mass shooting.
9: And what are those factors?
28: So I talked to Courtney McCarthy, Uh, she's a school psychologist for the Salem-Kaiser School District in Salem, Oregon, which has a long-standing effective prevention program, and here's what she told me.
22: So some of those things might be like bullying and harassment. So someone developing long-standing grievances against other people for perceived wrongs in their lives.
28: And we know that was the case for the Sandy Hook shooter, and now it seems that bullying and harassment uh, was indeed the experience of the Uvalde shooter, too. And he had a troubled home life. His mother struggled with addiction. um, And that's not uncommon either. Many shooters have had difficult family lives, uh, childhood traumas. And mental health issues are often in the mix. Now, I should point out that mental health problems alone don't cause somebody to become violent. In fact, those with mental illnesses are more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators.
9: I'm really glad you pointed that out. We should be clear, the vast majority of people struggling with mental health issues do not physically attack others. So, do exactly. what puts a small minority of these individuals on
28: such a horrifically violent path? So a big, big factor is the absence of positive, supportive relationships, especially with caring adults, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, who can be good role models for um, investing in this young person, showing them ways to problem solve in nonviolent ways. So most of these individuals, you know, have often spent a long time feeling alone as they are struggling with all the things that they're dealing with. Uh, Reed Malloy is a forensic psychologist and a consultant with the FBI, and he says this is what happens for most adolescent males in these circumstances.
11: When every day is misery, one will then tend to withdraw into fantasy. And in that fantasy, you begin to imagine that you are, in a sense, larger than life, that you are more powerful than you are in your actual life.
28: And that's when they start to identify with past school shooters and their anguish turns into anger. And they start researching plans and coming up with their own, uh, which brings me to one of the most important risk factors, and that's easy access to guns, <laughs> which is what makes it possible for someone to act on their plan.
9: So what can be done? What's being done to stop young people
28: from going down this road? Well, first of all, I want to remind everyone that schools are still one of the safest places, even if these horrific incidents are going up. Um, but experts I so, spoke to said schools um, are more and more are engaging in something called behavioral threat assessment when a group of individuals work together intentionally, law enforcement, mental health professionals, schools, communities, mm-hmm. to spot those early warning signs to, so that law enforcement can intervene.
9: That is Zempierre's Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you so much, Ritu.
28: Thank you,
9: Alfa. As Russia's
8: war in Ukraine enters its fourth month, European countries are scrambling to wean themselves off of Russian gas. The Baltic nation of Lithuania has become the first to do so. NPR's Rob Schmitz brings us this story on how it did it and how it's helping its neighbors do the same.
20: The first sign that all was not good in Lithuania's energy sector came a decade ago. That's when Russian energy company Gazprom, which supplied Lithuania with all its gas, suddenly increased the price of it by more than 30%. Within a year, Lithuania was paying more for gas than any country in Europe.
28: At some point, uh, gas prices became so punitive in this country that the government then in power decided that we need to decouple from Gazprom or to have an alternative uh, source of supply.
20: Lithuanian Prime Minister Ingrida Simonytė remembers how the country's then government decided to build a liquefied natural gas terminal on the Baltic Sea. A message to Russia that if it set the price too high, Lithuania could simply import gas from elsewhere.
28: And this uh, terminal started uh, functioning in the end of 2014 and the prices of Gazprom immediately went down.
20: Video from 2014 shows a massive ship, known as a floating storage and regasification unit, arriving at the port of Klaipeda while hundreds of people crowd around to take a look. The ship was called the Independence and it forced Gazprom to adjust its prices back to market rates. The company also brought down its gas price for neighboring Latvia and Estonia. Daria Shelenskis is CEO of Klaipeda's Nafta, the company that runs the LNG terminal.
5: So this means we created a market
20: and
1: we, let's say, prevented monopolist approach
5: from the
20: He says the same thing happened years later in 2020, when the Baltic states connected their pipeline with Finland. Gazprom was again forced to lower its gas price for Finland to compete with a new supply. Now, with much of Europe scrambling to wean itself off of Russian gas, Shilenskas says Lithuania's decades-long journey to energy independence now seems prescient.
1: Because we are closer because we are smaller, because
5: we are blackmailed, because we have been occupied for 40 years by the Soviets. So we were always cautious about uh, suppliers from Russia. And that's why we did uh, homework
20: earlier. And all that homework did more than lower the price of Russian gas. It prompted Gazprom and others to sell off their shares of Lithuania's gas pipeline. And now Lithuania's government owns it. And in the dense forest outside the capital of Vilnius is the heart of this pipeline, a gas compressor station that, when it opened earlier this month, connected the pipeline to the rest of Europe for the first time. Nemanus Piknius, CEO of Ambergrid, the company that manages Lithuania's pipeline, shows me a map of it.
13: And the pipeline that goes towards Poland, uh, that uh, 500 kilometers pipeline, that uh, 165 kilometers are in our country, and uh, the rest is in Poland, it starts here.
20: This gas travels from the LNG terminal and on to Poland, a project whose timing for Warsaw was immaculate. It opened less than a week after Russia cut off its gas deliveries to Poland. Biknia says he's been receiving calls from countries throughout Europe about the new pipeline. We are as one of the
13: options, not the biggest option for, for the EU to, to receive gas through the terminal. And uh, absolutely everybody is, is, is looking for, for all the ways that are
27: possible to provide gas.
20: And as much of Europe is now working overtime to line up alternative gas supplies, Biknia says the lesson for everyone is clear. Don't put all your energy eggs in one basket. It's a lesson much of Europe is learning the hard way. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Lithuania.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Gang violence is now pushing thousands of people to abandon their homes in the capital of Haiti, Port-au-Prince. It's forcing schools and hospitals to close. And this new surge comes less than a year after the brutal assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise. Jacqueline Charles reports on Haiti for the Miami Herald and joins us now. And we should warn listeners that some of the details of this violence may be disturbing to hear. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. So can you just describe for us what it is like to
19: live in Port-au-Prince right now? Like, how dangerous is it? Well, you know, the problem with Port-au-Prince is that it is very dangerous. Um, You know, kidnappings. Um, are rampant. They have continued unabated. As I am speaking to you now, there are currently three physicians um, who are currently being held in captivity. Hospitals are closed because of, you know, the protests. In addition to um, these doctors, a schoolgirl was recently kidnapped um, in the last couple of days and also an employee of the United Nations. Um, Day by day, the safe space, if we can call it, it's just getting smaller because potentially anybody can become a victim. Mm -hmm. The economy is in shatters, not just in Port-au-Prince, but throughout the country. We have a new phenomenon that's happening where people are seeking to escape. They're getting on boats and we are currently undergoing the largest Haitian, migration crisis or boat refugee crisis in nearly two decades. Wow.
9: Horrible. Well, how much hope is there right now that the police will eventually be able to contain this violence? I mean, what actions are being taken by not only the police, but by other officials?
19: The situation is just followed on April 22nd, we saw a gang clash that took place just east of the capital of Port-au-Prince. And that went on essentially for two weeks. And as a result, you know, the UN says that 75 people were killed. A local human rights group in Port-au-Prince, they put the number at a minimum, 148. People were not just killed, they were sliced up body parts were dropped into you know wells and and, and latrines um, oh to God. basically get rid of any evidence of this happening children have not been able to go to school there's a calm but some people will tell you that calm isn't necessarily because the police went in and shut it down or arrested the gangs I mean they have been trying the best that they can but you know it seems the situation has bypassed them go back to last year when you had five police officers who went into one of these slums a quote-unquote kidnapping lair till this day their bodies have not been recovered. And they went in in armored vehicles to confront the gangs. So under these kinds of circumstances, people are just looking to say, when will things change? How will they change? Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, it just, it hope is very hard to find.
9: Well, for those who do not want to remain in Haiti, you mentioned the mass exodus right now. Where are they generally trying to go?
19: So it's a very interesting, you know, exodus that's happening. Those with passports and visas, they are traveling to the Dominican Republic. Some are even coming to the United States because legally they can do so, right? They're taking a break. Or in the case of the Dominican Republic, they're moving themselves, their families, their businesses. Mm -hmm. But what you also have is those who don't have um, visas, who don't have legal documents to travel, and they're getting on boats and they are trying to get to Puerto Rico and they're trying to get to the Florida Keys. Since November, we've had five boatloads of Haitian migrants that have successfully made it through the Florida Straits to land in the Florida Keys. It's the first time um, in years that that has happened. And every week we're getting reports from the U.S. Coast Guard of Haitians being stopped at sea.
9: That is Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald. Thank you very much for your reporting and for your time today.
19: Thank you for having me.
9: You're listening
8: to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, three decades after the original Top Gun, Tom Cruise returns to lead a fresh squadron of Navy fighter pilots in Top Gun Maverick. That story's coming up.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. And Empire Loan, with eight New England locations, recognizing Boston Explorers, whose mission provides children ages 7 to 15 the opportunity to explore Boston in an electronic-free setting and learn lifelong skills committed to ensuring all children have full and equal access to Boston. bostonexplorers.org.
0: Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to wbur.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Pretty nice this afternoon. Overnight tonight should be fairly mild, right about 60 degrees. Lots of clouds around tonight. And then overcast again tomorrow, but a lot warmer. Should reach 81 degrees over the weekend. Looks like we could have showers on Saturday. A dry, sunny day on Sunday up in the high 70s both days. 72 degrees
7: now in Boston. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices, catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsored of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB. I'm Christopher
11: Leighton. Next time on Open Source, Paths of Dissent. This Memorial Day weekend, what are the veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan remembering? On our show, it's a pretty appalling litany from vets of all services and stripes, of mates lost to IEDs, and worse, to suicide. That's You Will Remember, next on Open Source, tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang And
8: I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has the political world focused once again on guns. Few issues draw more passion in politics. So we're going to look more closely now at how Americans actually feel about gun rights versus gun restrictions. Joining us is NPR political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hi, Domenico. Hey there. Broadly speaking in this country, where does more support land
17: on the gun issue, for pro-restrictions or for pro-rights? Well, generally, there's a slim majority who are in favor of stricter gun laws. You know, Gallup tracks this question and found 52% in favor of stricter laws, uh, but that's down 15 points from right after the Parkland, Florida shooting in 2018. That was the highest level of support back then for restrictions since 1993, when violent crime across the country had spiked. Uh, the drop is, though, due to Republicans and Independents who've fallen back. Democrats, on the other hand, have increased in their. Percentage of wanting restrictions since then. So the partisan gap on this issue has only widened. And, and Domenico, this is a pattern we've seen, that in the
8: immediate aftermath mm-hmm. of a mass shooting, there's increased support for restrictions, but that fades over time.
17: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's part of a strategy for gun rights groups like the NRA. You repeatedly hear their leaders say in moments like these, take a pause, don't make any decisions now. And they do that as a tactic. They know that the further away from an event like Columbine or Sandy Hook or Parkland or Uvalde, that there's the, there's less pressure on lawmakers to act. Uh, a couple of other factors to look at here as well. When a Democrat is in the White House, gun rights groups raise more money and Republicans become less likely to support any restrictions because of a drum up fear that Democrats are going to go after their guns. And we should note that surveys show that roughly four in 10 U.S. households have guns in them. Uh, also, we have seen a precipitous decline in support for handgun bans, uh, and it's hard to separate that from the Supreme Court's permissibility when it comes to guns, notably starting with the Heller decision in 2008 that struck down D.C.'s gun, handgun ban and for the first time said that the Constitution guarantees the right of an individual to have a handgun in their home. What happens
8: when polling gets into specific questions like where Americans stand on stricter background
17: checks and assault weapon bans? Well, take expanded background checks to start with. Routinely, polling shows about 9 in 10 Americans are in favor of them. Uh, I was struck this week when I saw Golden State Warriors head coach uh, Steve Kerr in the NBA referencing that when he went viral this week for his impassioned plea on guns after the Uvalde shooting. 90%
4: of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on
17: to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. You know, he's largely right on the numbers and no other issue gets that level of support. But there's not enough support from Republican lawmakers for expanded background checks. Um, President Biden and other Democrats believe the best way to stop mass shootings is to ban the kinds of weapons that can get lots of shots off in a short amount of time. A ban on assault style weapons like the Uvalde gunman used. You know, this country did have a ban on those in place for 10 years, as well as a ban on high-capacity magazines. When those were lifted, mass shootings rose dramatically. Uh, An assault weapons ban also has majority support, but not necessarily among Republicans. And that's a key factor here for why these restrictions have not been put back into law at a federal level. NPR's Domenica Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. It's been 36 years since Tom
9: Cruise first took to the skies as Pete Mitchell with the call sign Maverick, you know, the hotshot jet fighter pilot in Top Gun.
17: I feel the need,
28: the need for speed.
9: Now Cruise is back in the cockpit in Top Gun Maverick. The sequel premiered last week at the Cannes Film Festival, and critic Bob Mondello says it's the same but sharper.
29: The opening credit sequence is identical, almost shot for shot, as if to reassure audiences the filmmakers haven't forgotten what worked the first time. Airmen readying sleek jet fighters in pre-dawn light on the deck of an aircraft carrier, planes silhouetted against a sky just starting to glow orange as the sun burns off the mist, then the whine of jet engines as one plane fires up, then another, and another, and a roar as each one rockets into what Kenny Loggins is about to remind us is the danger zone. Haven't seen the original Top Gun? What about the recruitment ads modeled on it after the 1986 Navy saw a 500% spike in enlistees wanting to be aviators? We are in the zone here, going straight to shots of a still seriously fit, almost 60-year-old Tom Cruise, revving up his Kawasaki Ninja, roaring down a highway to what looks like a gigantic arrowhead that he's supposed to fly to Mach 9. But I mean, seriously, 9? With Ed Harris about to shut down the test? How about 10? How about 10.2, just so they'll have something to talk about when he's called on the carpet?
30: 30-plus years of service, combat medals, citations, Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Yet you can't get a promotion. You won't retire. Despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are.
31: Captain. What is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir.
29: Maverick gets assigned to train new blood in the Top Gun pilot program, much to the annoyance of John Hamm, his immediate superior. I have everything I need to have you court-martialed and dishonorably discharged. Yeah, well Maverick has a guardian angel. His rival ace, Iceman, is now an admiral, still played by Val Kilmer, whose off-screen battle with throat cancer brings significant resonance when he shows up here. There is a mission, call it impossible if you must. Certainly it's a risky business, flying 30 feet off the ground at five Hundred miles an hour between cliffs, you get the impression Cruz could do this with eyes wide shut. But they've given him a few good men to work with. What do we have here? And one good woman.
7: Fellas, this here's Bagman. Hangman. Oh, whatever.
29: All with descriptive call signs they've earned in flight. Where's he going?
30: That's why we call him Hangman. He'll always hang you out to drive.
29: <laughs> Others include Rooster, Phoenix.
30: You gotta move, Coyote.
29: Who are your friends? Payback, Fanboy.
13: What do they call you?
29: Bob. No, your call sign. Okay, from my perspective, that's a cheap joke, just saying. Director Joseph Kaczynski has clearly studied what the original Top Gun did, but he has a far better script to work with, not more plausible exactly, but one that puts an adult cruise in charge of all that free-range testosterone the film's unleashing. That lets it channel emotions the first one couldn't, as when Maverick tells Rooster, the grown-up son of his wingman Goose, who died all those years ago, to follow his instincts. You think up there you're dead? Believe me. My dad believed in you, I'm not going to make the same mistake. Rooster's played by Miles Teller with a mustache nearly as big as the chip on his shoulder and ripped abs that he and his fellow airmen display in team building beach football rather than beach volleyball this time, all of which is designed to help the film barrel right past your plot objections before they quite have time to form in nerve centers overstimulated what the hell? by vertigo inducing
31: aviators.
29: Aspect ratio exploding.
31: This is your captain speaking.
29: IMAX flight sequences. Cruz insisted that these be filmed with the actor's actual in-flight, and they are nerve-scrambling in ways digital trickery on screen just isn't. Not going to say Top Gun Maverick takes my breath away exactly, but it's one hell of a ride. I'm Bob Mandela.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com slash wealth, investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Aspiration, a digital banking alternative designed for people who care about the environment. Customers can plant a tree with every swipe of their debit card to offset their carbon footprint. Aspiration.com green. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig.
0: Questions have emerged about the police response to the attack on school children in Uvalde, Texas. Authorities are trying to classify details of the shooting.
4: It was reported that a school district police officer confronted the suspect he was making entry, not accurate. He walked in unobstructed initially.
0: This is All Things Considered. The latest on the investigation coming up. Also, mass shootings are so common in the U.S. that researchers have created a handbook to help local officials navigate the aftermath of the attacks.
14: What we're trying to do is give them the tools they need to understand the magnitude of their role, which starts when the shooting starts and can continue for years.
0: More on the mass shooting protocol coming up, also remembering actor and good fella Ray Liotta. It's 5.01, news headlines are next.
32: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A Texas law enforcement official involved in the probe into this week's mass school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, says the 18-year-old gunman who killed 19 children and two adults was able to enter that school through an unobstructed door. Victor Escalon is a regional director with the Texas Department of Public Safety.
4: Right now, it appears it was unlocked. Like I said, it goes back to the investigation. It takes time. Uh, We will find out as much as we can why it was unlocked, or maybe it was locked, but right now it appears it was unlocked.
32: Escalon says despite some reports to the contrary, the gunman did not encounter any law enforcement officers as he entered the school. Police have confirmed the gunman was inside the elementary school, though, for at least an hour before he was shot and killed by law enforcement. Still not clear why they did not enter the building sooner. The small community of Uvalde is dealing with overwhelming grief after this week's shooting. NPR's Merritt Kennedy says residents are paying their respects to the students and two adults who died there.
8: In front of Robb Elementary School, the site of the deadly shooting, community members arrived to lay flowers and candles on 21 crosses, each bearing the name of a victim. 80-year-old Maria Alvarez approaches the scene with her brother to honor those who were killed. She's holding a white religious candle and he holds a bouquet of white flowers. Her great-granddaughter was at the school during the shooting. She's safe. Thank God she's safe. It's a small community where it feels like almost everyone has a personal connection to the gunmen and to the many victims. But for now, what unites them is grief. Merritt Kennedy, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas.
32: Senate Republicans have blocked legislation to elevate the federal effort to combat domestic terrorism. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports Democrats wanted to use the bill in part to debate proposals to reduce gun violence.
14: The bill would have created offices at the Departments of Justice, Homeland Security, and FBI, tasked with analyzing and tracking domestic terror threats. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it could help prevent mass shootings like the racist rampage in New York and the elementary school massacre in Texas.
5: This bill will give the government the tools to monitor, find, and arrest these evil actors before they have a chance to inflict violence on their communities.
14: The measure got through the House on a largely party-line vote, but it stalled in the Senate. Many Republicans argued it can enable federal agencies to label parents advocating against school board policies as domestic terrorists. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News.
32: The U.S. economy shrank during the first three months of the year, even as consumers and businesses kept up their spending. The government reporting today the 1.5 percent decline is a slight downgrade of a previous estimate for the January through March period. A strong session on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 516 points. That's a rise of 1.61 percent. The Nasdaq rose 305 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A bill that would crack down on the distribution of sexually explicit material is moving forward on Beacon Hill. Today, the Massachusetts House approved the so-called revenge porn bill. It now heads to the state Senate. The bill imposes jail times and fines for anyone who distributes pornography without the consent of the people who are depicted. It also directs the attorney general and education officials to develop school programs that outline the legal consequences of sending explicit text messages or posting indecent photos online. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says Congress has a moral responsibility to address gun violence violence in the wake of the deadly school shooting in Texas. He spoke at a Capitol Hill rally of advocates for stronger gun laws today. Markey says Republican lawmakers have blocked Democratic efforts to pass laws on background checks and measures to let a judge remove someone's weapons if the judge deems a person dangerous. A Republican Party, he says, which opposes the simplest protections that ensure that those who should not have guns in our society do not get access to them. That again from Ed Markey, who says lawmakers would have to abolish the filibuster in order for Congress to pass gun safety legislation. 10,000 Boston households will soon be able to leave compostable waste out on Trash and Recycling Day. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu announced that enrollment is now open for the city's new food waste collection program. Participants must live in a residential building with six units or less to be eligible. People in low-resource communities will be prioritized. Special bins will be distributed as part of the program, and collection begins in August. The city says food waste will be turned into compost and renewable energy. The program c- could expand to more households in the future. And traffic has been largely better than expected today. AAA Northeast had forecast this to be the busiest day on Metro Boston highways for the entire Memorial Day weekend stretch. There were some lengthy delays on 128 between in Weston and Wakefield earlier this afternoon, but those have mostly eased and there are no significant delays at the Cape Cod bridges. In the forecast, cloudy, breezy overnight tonight, <clears throat> low temperatures just about 60, cloudy, breezy and warm tomorrow rising to 81, 70 degrees now in Boston at 506.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. In Uvalde, Texas today, the community
8: is beginning to cope with its unimaginable loss. Nineteen children and two teachers murdered by an armed gunman who entered Robb Elementary School on Tuesday. Outside the school, 21 white crosses have gone up. Each one is painted with the name of one of the victims. All day, mourners have arrived with flowers and stuffed animals and letters of condolence. But even as the community begins to process its grief, some families of the victims are angry. They say the police did not do enough to save their children, and that has forced the police to respond. Here with more is NPR's Adrian Florido. He joins us from Uvalde. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sasha. Adrian, why do parents and family members feel that the police response to the shooting failed?
24: Well, you know, Sasha, we know that this shooter barricaded himself inside the elementary school classroom where he carried out the massacre. And one of the big questions until today was how long was he in there before police rushed in and killed him? Uh, Officials today said that it took about an hour to enter the classroom and shoot this gunman dead. And one of the things we've been hearing from family members of the victims who rushed to the school while the gunman was still inside is that they were begging police to go in and rush the sh- shooter sooner. And they didn't understand why that wasn't happening. Uh, I spoke today with uh, Lucinda Velasquez. She is the great aunt of two of the children who were injured but not killed in this massacre. Uh, and she told me that she rushed to the school uh, when she heard what was happening. Listen to what she said.
10: I was in the front. All the cars were just there.
6: All of them just there in the front, and we just, we're just talking to them to hurry up and move and go inside. And then they say, you yeah, need to leave, you yeah, need to leave because they should you yeah, need to go inside and do something. Stop him. How hard it is. they didn't do it. No, they didn't.
24: She said that there is this deep and growing feeling in the community here that the police failed, that they waited too long to go in after the shooter. Uh, here's more of what she said.
6: I live here 45 years and they haven't done nothing. Look at all these innocent little babies. Did they have to die because they didn't want to go inside?
24: So that's a question that's on everyone's mind here, Sasha, is would more children have lived if the police had, had acted more quickly?
8: I understand the police held a press conference this afternoon. How did they respond to this criticism?
24: Well, uh, Victor Escalón, he's the regional director with the Texas Department of Public Safety, and he spoke outside the elementary school today. Uh, He gave some more details about what the police did when they arrived at the school, and he said that the first officers on the scene were local officers who took fire from the gunman and because of that held back. Uh, They were yelling at him apparently from the hallway outside the classroom but did not try to rush the classroom. It wasn't until an hour later that officers from the U.S. Border Patrol arrived and along with those local officers already on the scene, were able to rush in and kill the shooter. Here's some of what um, Escalon said.
4: Could anybody have gone there sooner? You got to understand, small town. Yeah, people from Eagle Pass, from Del Rio, Laredo, San Antonio, responding to a small community.
24: That's part of the reason he said it took a while for reinforcements to show up, the necessary reinforcements to take this this gunman out. He was also asked about these claims from families that... that, that, that that, uh, that they were saying they were trying to get in but were being held back by the police. And he said that he had heard those claims, but he didn't have enough information about that yet.
8: At the press conference, did police provide more details about how the shooter was even able to get into the school?
24: They said that he got in through what was apparently an unlocked side door to the school. Um, he drove his grandmother's uh, truck to the scene, crashed, climbed a, a, a fence into the parking lot, and got into this uh, school through an unlocked uh, door apparently. Um, he also said that contrary to what officials said yesterday, the gunman was not confronted by a campus police officer when he first arrived. There was not even an officer present. Uh, here's what he said.
4: From the grandmother's house, to the bar ditch, to the school, into the school, he was not confronted by anybody. To clear the record on that.
24: There's been a lot of talk Sasha, about you know, the importance of hardening security around schools. Uh, there are still many questions about why this door was apparently unlocked uh, and a lot of questions about uh, you know what went wrong at this school to allow this gunman access to carry out this massacre.
8: Have you been able to speak with any more members of the community today? And if so, what are you hearing?
24: I, I've spoken with several people, including some high school students from the nearby high school, ULD High School, who said that um, this community is devastated, trying to figure out you know, how do we process? How do we begin to begin to cope? What, 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 what? Trying to come to terms with the, the, hor- the, horrific nature of what happened. I spoke with a, a, a student named Kaylin Sandoval, whose sister was a student, is a student at Rob Elementary School. Here's what she said.
25: I've been thinking about my little sister because she's scared to go to sleep by herself now. And she's scared to even be by herself. We're all just in shock. And it might take a long time to recover from all of this.
24: A friend of hers told me that uh, this town, a small community, will never be the same.
23: I'm sure.
8: That's NPR's Adrian Florido in Uvalde. Adrian, thank you.
24: Thank you, Sasha.
9: Everyone keeps asking when Russia is going to launch the cyber war. It's been more than three months since Putin invaded Ukraine, but the digital destruction that experts promised seems to be missing. Or is it? Software giants like Microsoft might have the answer. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin went to Seattle to find out.
33: Tom Burt says there's absolutely a cyber war going on in Ukraine right now.
34: If you are Ukrainian, this has been a relentless, unending cyber war that has been launched in correspondence with the physical war in what is clearly the world's first major hybrid war.
33: I spoke to Burt inside Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit, part of a sprawling tech metropolis surrounded by woods and mountains just east of downtown Seattle. On the wall, he had a massive map of Ukraine to show us where the cyber attacks are happening.
34: So we're just looking at a map of Ukraine um,
33: and- Bert leads a team of analysts who work with the sleuths in the Digital Crimes Unit. In a quiet room humming with servers, he tells us about a fresh wave of attacks that they haven't spoken about publicly before.
34: We've seen a number of cyber attacks going targeting specifically railways. And at the same time, there have been bombing attacks on railways.
33: As the war drags on, Russia's targeting transportation, so Ukrainians can't move vital supplies. But this is just the latest of a series of attacks that date back to even months before the Russian invasion.
34: So in February, as the forces were marshalling on the border of Ukraine, we had seen a number of cyber events already. In January, we saw destructive attacks against a number of Ukrainian government agencies.
33: In a cyber war, it's often private companies that have the most insight into what's happening, even more than the U.S. government. Microsoft isn't the only game in town, but pretty much everybody has at least one Microsoft product running on their phone or computer.
34: We receive every day 24 trillion signals that come in from our environment.
33: The night of February 24th, the world watched in horror as Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation in a pre-recorded address. For most, that marked the beginning of a full-scale invasion.
34: But from our viewpoint, it really started February 23rd, about 10 hours before um, the missiles were launched and the tanks rolled across the border. There was a huge wiper attack across 300 different systems in government agencies and private sector companies in Ukraine.
33: A wiper attack is designed to literally wipe away all the data. While Bert says his team can't be sure Russian hackers are coordinating their attacks directly with the soldiers in the tanks, there has been a lot of overlap between physical and cyber attacks.
34: So you might see, for example, espionage attacks into government agencies in a particular town just before that town is hit by missiles.
33: The goal is to damage important public institutions and their ability to function. That includes the media too.
34: And so they bombed. Um, you know, radio towers. They physically invaded and seized media companies. And at the same time, they were engaged in cyber attacks on media companies.
33: The attacks have been relentless, but it's not all bad news.
34: They've been attacked by the Russians for so many years. And the work that they've done to be resilient has really paid off. It's enabled them to be fast, to be able to defend well, and to be able to recover when they are attacked.
33: Bert's team is facing challenges they've never seen before. One instance in particular jumps to mind when his team was trying to alert one Ukrainian company about a cyber attack.
34: And we got a response back that was, yes, but we can't do anything with it right now. There's tanks outside the gates.
33: Tom Bird is aware that sitting here in Seattle, he is far away from the front lines, even as his team works constantly to battle Russian cyber attacks.
34: We're back here in the United States where we're safe. Our families are not at risk. We're not personally at risk, but the Ukrainians are. There are tanks and there's missiles and there's guns.
33: They're doing everything they can to help, says Burt, but they're not the ones in the trenches. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News, Seattle, Washington.
8: In the city of Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, cafes and restaurants are reopening. Public buses have started running again, and officials there say Ukraine has won the battle for the city. But about 10 miles to the north, there's a smaller town where the few people who remain are still hearing relentless shelling and living in their basements. The View from Eastern Ukraine tomorrow on Morning Edition. On your radio or try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, in a long-awaited speech, Secretary of State Antony Blinken outlines the Biden administration's approach to China. I'm Lisa Mullins checking Wall Street numbers, an upswing today for the major markets. The Dow rose for a fifth straight day, up more than 1.5 percent, or 517 points, to close at 32,637. S&P brought in 2 percent to close at 4,058. The Nasdaq surged nearly two and three quarters percent to close at 11,700. More business coming up.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Boston workers employed by the cloud computing company VMware will soon have a new
0: owner. The company with offices in Boston and Burlington has been sold to software maker Broadcom for about $61 billion. If regulators approve, it'll be one of the biggest acquisitions in tech history. Broadcom's software division will operate under VMware's brand. This is WBUR. Stay tuned for business news on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com.
0: Bright skies out there now, cloudy though tonight, breezy, lows about 60 degrees, cloudy, breezy, and warm for tomorrow, rising to 81. 70 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of a lime Probiotic a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The
8: war in Ukraine is dominating much of the attention of the State Department these days. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the United States is also focused on what he calls an even larger threat to the U.S.-led international order, China. Blinken laid out the Biden administration's China strategy today in a much-anticipated speech. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports.
30: Secretary Blinken calls China the most serious long-term challenge to the international order and a test for U.S. diplomacy.
26: The Biden administration strategy can be summed up in three words, invest, align, compete
30: invest at home, align with allies and partners, and compete with China to promote America's view of what the world order should be. He went out of his way in his speech hosted by the Asia Society and George Washington University to explain what this is not.
26: We are not looking for conflict or a new Cold War. To the contrary, we're determined to avoid both. We don't seek to block China from its role as a major power, nor to stop China, or any other country for that matter, from growing their economy or advancing the interests of their people.
30: China accuses the U.S. of doing just that. The Secretary of State says the U.S. is ready to increase its communications with Beijing on a range of issues, but warns that China is trying to reshape the international order and it has the economic, military and technological power to do it.
26: Under President Xi, the ruling Chinese Communist Party has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad.
30: While the speech didn't break new ground, Daniel Russell of the Asia Society says there is value in explaining U.S. policy to the American public, and he says the Biden team's approach is a break from the Trump administration.
12: The approach that Tony Blinken laid out is a values-based approach, not a smash-and-grab transactional
30: approach. One key difference, Russell says, is the focus on partnerships in Asia and in Europe. Working in tandem with other nations, working
12: with and through international organizations and so on. These things couldn't be further from the approach that the Trump administration took.
30: U.S. and European views on China are converging, says Bonnie Glaser, who runs the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund. But she says the allies are not on the same page on every issue, from trade to security. People here are focused, for example, on
2: the potential Chinese uh, invasion of Taiwan in a way that, that Europe is not. Uh, do they care about peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait? Absolutely. but. You know, it is not
30: their top priority. President Biden has said that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacks. Glazer says that's causing confusion. There have been several
2: Chinese that have been quoted as saying that the United States is testing Beijing's bottom line on Taiwan. I I don't think that's true, but I think it's dangerous if China thinks
30: so. Glazer says the Biden administration needs to clear up some of the confusion and be clear with the American public, maybe with a whole new speech on that subject. In his remarks today, Secretary Blinken insisted that America's policy on Taiwan has been consistent. The U.S. has strong relations with the self-governed island, he said, but doesn't support its independence.
26: While our policy has not changed, what has changed is Beijing's growing coercion, like trying to cut off Taiwan's relations with countries around the world and blocking it from participating in international organizations.
30: And just as many countries have come together to oppose Russia's aggression in Ukraine, Blinken is hoping more will join the U.S. to counter China's attempts to reshape the world order. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. More than
9: one million people have died in the U.S. from COVID-19 since the pandemic began. NPR has been remembering some of those who died through the music that gave their lives meaning. We call these tributes Songs of Remembrance. Today, we're meeting Katherine Redmond, who's remembering her cousin Mona Fort of St. Louis, Missouri, with My Way by Frank Sinatra.
3: She introduced herself as Mona Lisa. Whatever you think about the Mona Lisa painting, you know what it looks like. I think that she was the same way. Her brother, Craig, for her funeral services, he put together a beautiful slideshow of, you know, our favorite memories with Mona. And that was the song that he picked out. And we all just agreed that that, it just is such a perfect summation of who she was. She did everything her way. She lived life her way. All of her adventures, all of her choices, the way she just, when you met her, you would not think she was her age. Like, I'm 35 and I hung out with her. Like, I hang out with my girlfriends. Um, She just, she did everything her way.
2: I did it my way.
3: Oh man, she was hilarious. Like, the life of the party, like, her whole aura just lights up the room i can remember when i was little she would come back from like trips to new orleans and bring me like beads which i thought were so cool as a you know 6 and 6 or 7 year old girl she used to paint my nails red and my mom would fuss at her for it She's everyone's favorite always laughing, always dancing, always ready for a, a good cocktail. She always made really good cocktails and was a connoisseur of good cocktails Her signature blue eyeshadow like everybody I, I, I just I hope that one day I can be as as free in my expression of myself as she was
5: When there was
12: I ate it up and spit it out.
5: I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my way.
3: I've heard it so many times now since since then. So the last trip that we were planning with Mona before she passed was to Aruba. And so we decided that, you know, she would definitely want us to go. So we still went. And the first night we were there, we all wanted to do karaoke. Our family loves karaoke. So we found a karaoke bar in Aruba and we went and, you know, we're, we're singing songs. There were a couple of other people there singing songs. And so one of the gentlemen that was in the bar when we got there, He asked if he could, you know, get in the queue. And so this Spanish song starts playing. And it was My Way. He sang My Way. Oh man, I'm gonna cry. He sang My Way by Frank Sinatra in Spanish. And all of us were just like, Like crying, like happy tears, because it just felt like she was there with us.
9: Catherine Redmond, remembering her cousin Mona Fort, who died of COVID 19 last April at the age of
24: 67.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. And the forecast may need to kick off a blanket tonight. Our low should be about 60. Tomorrow, still cloudy, breezy, dry, and warmer, up around 81 for a high. Then for the weekend, showers and thunderstorms off and on. Gusty wind Saturday, highs about 78. Wet weather should move out by Sunday, letting the sunshine in for the day. Highs about 78. 70 degrees now in the Boston area. Under bright skies, the time is
35: 5.30.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. The Harvard Art Museums, works from artists Kahinde Wiley, Georgia O'Keeffe, Vincent van Gogh, Rembrandt, and more. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. And Red's Best, networking local fishermen, fish, sushi, and shellfish from the Boston Fish Pier, Delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at RedsBest.com.
19: It's estimated that more than 60,000 people live on the streets of Los Angeles. Put another way, 20% of all unhoused Americans are in L.A. My kids started understanding that it wasn't just our problem a lot of people were going through. This This is kind of the times right now. I'm Kimberly atkins Store L.A.'s unhoused crisis. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR,
23: Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration is ramping up the pressure on the Senate to reach a bipartisan compromise on legislation that would strengthen the nation's gun laws. The renewed push comes two days after a gunman opened fire on an elementary school in Texas, killing 19 children and two teachers. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the Senate needs to break the longstanding stalemate that has prevented the chamber from passing stricter gun laws.
8: The president has been very clear. He wants action. He wants to, Congress to take action. He wants to t- turn this pain into action. And I hope the Senate, and particularly those who have been
23: unwilling to act in the face of pre- previous tragedies, will act out. President Biden and the First Lady are scheduled to visit Texas on Sunday. They'll meet with families and members of the community to offer their support and condolences. Russian forces pounded targets across eastern and southern Ukraine today. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports that includes cities in the Donbass region, where Russia has been making slow progress in its offensive.
1: The Russian military continues to bombard the city of Sverdodonets with artillery and rockets as Russia looks to advance in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine. In the town of Bakhmut, which is just 12 to 15 miles from the front lines, many civilians have already evacuated, although some are only now looking for a way out. One of them is 74-year-old Deliana Razunenka. She says there have been explosions almost every night, but thankfully last night, she says, was peaceful. Razunenka's apartment block was hit six days ago, and she says she and her sister are desperate to leave. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine.
23: On Wall Street, the Dow was up 516 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR
0: in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is a step closer to allowing people in the country without documentation to obtain a state driver's license. Today, both the House and Senate passed an immigrant license bill and sent it to Governor Charlie Baker's desk. Backers say the bill will make roads safer by increasing the number of people who are properly trained to drive. There is enough support in both chambers to override a potential veto from Governor Baker. He's opposed to the bill because he says it could lead to voter fraud. Federal officials from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration are involved in the investigation into the death of a national grid worker this morning. The 35-year-old man was working on an electrical box at a parking lot on Salem Street in Medford when he was electrocuted. Three Medford police officers who responded were treated and released for smoke inhalation. National Grid says it's doing all it can to support the family of the worker who was killed. Mayor Michelle Wu is among those celebrating graduates in Boston this week. This morning, she spoke at Bunker Hill Community College. She congratulated the accomplishments of the students that they made despite challenging circumstances.
6: Today isn't a celebration of something you've been gifted or given, but what you have earned especially against the backdrop of all the other things going on in our world right now. To be sitting where you are sitting today is an impressive and incredible achievement.
0: This was the school's first in-person graduation in roughly three years. 1,300 students graduated from 95 degree and certificate programs this year. It's 534.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022 23, walnuthillarts.org. And Crystal, the very first on ice experience from Cirque du Soleil. Performances begin Wednesday at Aganas Arena through June 12th. Tickets are available at cirquedusoleil.com.
0: Red Sox are out in Chicago for Game 3 of their three-game series uh, with the White Sox. Enjoy the sunshine today. Clouds should move in tonight and stick around tomorrow and Saturday. Tonight's low is just about 60. Tomorrow should reach 81 degrees, about 78 on Saturday. Thunderstorms likely off and on on Saturday. Then the sun should return on Sunday. This is WBUR, 70 degrees now in Boston.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest.
8: LetsMakeAPlan.org. From
9: NPR News, I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The latest trial stemming from the violent January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is underway in Washington, D.C. The defendant is a man named Timothy Hale Cusinelli. He's a former Army reservist who worked as a security guard at a Navy base. Prosecutors say he's also a Nazi sympathizer who fantasized about a second civil war. Today, he testified in his own defense. And NPR's Tom Dreisbach joins us now from the courthouse. Hey, Tom. Hey, Elsa. So what exactly
21: is Hale Cusinelli accused of doing on January 6th? Well, both the prosecution and defense in this case say that Hale Cusinelli went from his job at that naval weapons station in New Jersey, drove down to Washington, D.C. after he worked the night shift. And he went inside the Capitol in one of the first waves of rioters to breach the building. You can see him on video walking around the Capitol for about 40 minutes, waving a flag at one point, waving at other rioters to join him inside the building. Now, he's not accused of assaulting police or damage. Damaging property in the Capitol building, but he has conceded, I should not have been there. So the most serious charge, though, he's facing is that he intentionally stormed the Capitol in order to disrupt the electoral college count that was happening in Congress that day. The defense says he did not have that goal. They say he got up, caught up in groupthink. Groupthink. Okay, well, how did prosecutors try to make their case? Well, prosecutors have cited a lot of evidence that Hale Cusinelli has extreme views. We saw text messages where he used slurs against gay people, Jewish people, black people, including the N-word several times. He said those things in the context sometimes of his belief that Joe Biden was controlled by, quote, Jewish interests and that Biden stole the 2020 election. We also saw a video where he yelled at Capitol Police that the revolution will be televised. Now, a key piece of testimony was from Hale Cusinelli's former roommate and friend at the base. He's a Navy medic, a black man, and he testified under a pseudonym because the government said he now feared for his safety. After January 6th, investigators got this roommate to wear a wire and ask Hale Cusinelli about what he did on January 6th. And in that taped conversation... Hale Cusinelli said no one had a plan to storm the Capitol, but he was enthusiastic about what he had done. He talked about his belief that a civil war was coming, about how it would give the country a clean slate. And prosecutors portrayed that as evidence that Hale Cusinelli wanted to overthrow the government, essentially.
9: Hmm. Okay, well, let's go to the defense. As we mentioned, Hale Cusinelli testified in his own
21: defense. What exactly did he say about all this? Well, he acknowledged that he has said horrific things, and he said he did that to get attention and to shock people, and that he constantly exaggerated. He described himself as a, quote, nihilistic millennial. Now, I've actually been following this case for more than a year, and today, for the first time in court, he said on the stand that he was actually half Jewish and half Puerto Rican, and his slurs were sometimes self-deprecating to get attention— Though I should say that prosecutors wanted to introduce more evidence about his alleged white supremacist ideology, his statements. The judge would not allow it in this case. In any case, he watched the Trump speech and went to the Capitol because Trump said that's where people were headed. Hale Kuzinelli said it was wrong to enter the building, he re- recognized that. But he said he did not intend to disrupt Congress because he claimed he did not know that Congress met at the Capitol building. Huh. How did that argument go over? Well, he acknowledged that it sounded, quote, idiotic and that it was embarrassing to admit. His own lawyer said Hale Cusinelli was not especially complicated in his thoughts. And even though he was 30 years old, his lawyer said he acted like, quote, a child having a temper tantrum. Prosecutors really pushed back on it. They said this idea defied common sense. This man studied American history in college. He texted friends about the electoral college counting process. In any case, the jury will have to decide which story sounds more credible. The case goes to them tomorrow. That is NPR's Tom Dreisbach at the Federal
9: District Courthouse in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Elsa.
8: After this week's mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, if the pattern continues, as it almost certainly will, the United States will have another mass shooting, and another, and then another. That means yet more communities will be reeling, trying to figure out what to do in the aftermath. This repetitive, tragic reality is why United on Guns at Northeastern University's School of Law created what it calls a mass shooting protocol. It's a checklist that prepares mayors and city managers for what to do in the first 24 hours after one of these incidents. Just last weekend, after the mass shooting in Buffalo, we had Sarah Peck, the director of United on Guns, on the air to tell us about it. And we have called her again today to talk about this latest tragedy. Sarah, thanks for coming back.
14: I'm sorry to be back so soon.
8: Well, I'm sorry, too. And I I think the fact that we even have to talk about this again shows why you created this and why there's an importance that it exists. So tell us, this checklist is designed to help mayors and city managers if they have their own mass shooting. But police officers, law enforcement, first responders, they also have to know what to do. Why did you focus on mayors and city managers?
14: Mayors often don't realize what their role is until a shooting happens in their community. What we're trying to do is give them the tools they need to understand the magnitude of their role, which starts when the shooting starts and can continue for years.
8: I understand that some mayors who have been through mass shootings in their own communities are now taking it upon themselves to share this checklist with other mayors going through mass shootings. Do you know if someone on that list has reached out to the mayor of Uvalde, Don McLaughlin?
14: Yes, we have an informal network of, of mayors and law enforcement officials that reach out to offer their condolences and their experience, as well as the protocol whenever a mass shooting takes place. And in the case of the this shooting, all of our mayors and several law enforcement officials did reach
8: out. Let's talk about some of the items on the checklist. For example, they're setting up a family reunification center, finding a place to try to get parents back together with their kids or family members back together. What advice do you give about family reunification centers?
14: It needs to be secured so that the press and other people can't enter. And immediate services that are provided include death notifications and and helping people get through those first awful hours. Uh, But then the next thing that happens is a family assistance center needs to be stood up. And this is where longer-term services, connection to mental health resources, legal resources, and uh, victims' compensation experts, all of these things need to be provided. And it's a huge undertaking. When a mass shooting happens,
8: vigils are often arranged. What are the recommendations for how to handle those?
14: It's really important that these events do not become politicized because that can further traumatize the families. And police support will be necessary as well.
8: This mass shooting protocol checklist covers just the first 24 hours, but I understand that your group has also created a much more detailed document that you call a playbook that's meant to cover far beyond the first 24 hours.
14: That's right, and and one of the things I'd like to say here is that if you visit our website, you can see all of these resources I spoke to one city official today whose city did use the resource in response to a school shooting and he said everywhere they went to the emergency operations center and to city hall, people had printed off the playbook and they were sitting around on desks being used. So I encourage people to take a look at the resources there so that they can understand what's available should they have a need to use them.
8: That's Sarah Peck. She's director of United on Guns, an initiative of the Public Health Advocacy Institute at Northeastern University School of Law. Sarah, thank you. Thank you very much.
9: This is All Things Considered. 154 economists are wading into the abortion debate. In a brief to the Supreme Court, they wrote that access to legal abortion here has led to women attaining higher levels of education and professional occupation and lower rates of children in poverty. But how can they be so sure? Well, our colleagues at The Indicator from Planet Money, Adrian Ma and Waylon Wong, explain it's based on something called causal inference.
25: Causal inference is all about using statistical tools to figure out how much one thing causes another thing. Caitlin Myers is an econ professor at Middlebury College. For
36: an empirical social scientist, it is like our daily bread and butter lives.
31: Now, under ideal conditions, figuring out causation is relatively straightforward. The gold standard would be a randomized controlled trial. Like, take the COVID vaccine.
36: People who were randomly assigned the vaccine... We're much less likely to get COVID or to develop severe symptoms than people who weren't randomly assigned to receive the vaccine. It's a correlation, but the random assignment in a randomized controlled trial gives us a lot of confidence that we can interpret it as causal.
31: Yeah, but it's not always possible or ethical to set up a randomized controlled trial. And so in those situations, researchers lean on natural experiments.
25: In the case of policies around abortion, Caitlin says the first natural experiment occurred even before Roe was decided. In the late 1960s, abortion was restricted across the country, but then a few states decided to loosen or repeal those restrictions. Caitlin says this is a good approximation for a randomized trial.
31: And when researchers compared the experiences of women in those states to women in the rest of the country, they found some pretty stark differences.
36: Legal access to abortion reduced the fraction of women who became teen moms by one-third. And it reduced the fraction of women who got married as teenagers by about a fifth. And I'll emphasize, we're talking about causation, not just correlation.
31: Another key tool in the causal inference toolkit that is often combined with natural experiments is something called multiple regression analysis. Basically, we're talking about very fancy math involving calculus and statistics. And you can think about it like this. Do you ever see those things in like kids' magazines where they have two pictures and you're like spot the difference?
25: I like that. I like that metaphor. I think it works. Multiple regression analysis allows economists to focus on the differences, you know, like access to abortion in certain states, while controlling for the similarities. Think trends that were happening across the country, like better access to contraception. And in the decades since Roe, a lot of economic studies have found access to abortion was the difference that shaped many women's financial lives.
31: For example, there's a study looking at patients who were denied an abortion because of how many weeks pregnant they were. And compared them to others who did get an abortion before the cutoff.
36: These researchers saw that the group that got turned away was dramatically more likely to experience financial instability. They were about 80 percent more likely to have an adverse credit outcome like a bankruptcy
25: than the other group. And Caitlin says causal inference doesn't just allow economists to understand what happened in the past. It also helps them predict what will likely happen if Roe is overturned and about half the states end up banning abortion. Based on her research, she estimates in the first year post-Roe, around 100,000 women who want an abortion would be unable to reach a provider. Waylon Wong,
31: Adrienne Ma, NPR News.
25: Support for Planet Money comes from
15: Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR and planning system for a changing world.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Michael Walker will be on the mound tonight in Chicago as the Red Sox play the final game of their three-game series of the White Sox. Dallas Keuchel pitches for Chicago. Sox will induct more members into their Hall of Fame in a ceremony tonight at Fenway Park. The inductees are David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez, and Worcester native and former catcher and coach Rich Gedman, also being inducted of former GM Dan Duquette and early 20th century pitcher Bill Deneen.
26: An American-made anti-tank missile is so popular in Ukraine, it has its own song. But U.S. javelin stockpiles are running low.
29: The production problem for javelins is that we've sent a lot of them, and we are producing them at a very high rate.
26: The javelin shortage, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Overcast skies move in for the night tonight. Temperatures fall as far as 60. For tomorrow, clouds spend the day. Should be more summer-like, topping out at 81 degrees. 70 degrees now in
8: the Boston area at 549. Win a diamond necklace or a cooking class in the WBUR Gala Auction. Bid now at WBUR.org
23: gala.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services hiring architects engineers and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems buildingrestorationservices.com
9: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Congresswoman Katherine Clark visits Studio 2 for a wide-ranging conversation. Gun control, Roe v. Wade, COVID relief funding, infant formula, and even more. What's
8: Congress getting
9: done? We'll ask her. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang with Sasha Pfeiffer. All right, let's talk about parrots. Does Polly want a cracker? I mean, what does Polly really want? Well, the only native parrot in the U.S. lives in the southern tip of Texas. It's beloved by locals, but it's threatened by habitat loss and pet poachers. NPR's John Burnett met up with a scientist who's trying to learn more about this smart and very poorly understood bird.
1: We're here in Oliveta Park in the Texas border city of Brownsville at dusk. A few dog walkers and hoop shooters are out. In the western sky, as the sun is about to set, a large flock of parrots approaches. They're brilliant green with red splotches on their crowns. Did you hear
6: that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Any chance? Carl Berg is a ponytail, sandals-wearing biologist at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, Brownsville campus. He comes out here with his binoculars and recording equipment several times a week, to observe and listen to the red-crowned parrots who roost in the eucalyptus trees. Hearing the, the duets a little bit here between the, the contact calls and the begging call, That. This parrot is an avian immigrant that flies back and forth across the border between a sliver of Tamaulipas, Mexico, and the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. This makes it a Tex-Mex native unlike its red-crowned cousins found in Florida and Southern California.
12: Now, we have a whole lot of breeding parrots in the United States
1: now, but almost all of them are exotic species that escaped from zoos or from families or were freed. (laughs) The lower Rio Grande Valley is a paradise for birdwatchers. They come here to check off the Green Jay, the Inca Dove, and the Chachalaca on their life list and they come to see the multicolored flocks of parrots and parakeets with their distinctive squawks. Linda Rockwell is a former board member of the American Birding Association who happened to be in the park this
2: evening.
0: The parrots are so fascinating to watch because they're such a social bird. And they flock together, they communicate with each
7: other. Watching the way birds interact with each other is one of the best parts of birding.
1: The ability of parrots to mimic human speech is one reason they're so coveted as caged birds. Parrots, along with ravens, are considered the most intelligent birds in the avian world. In other words, they don't just parrot what humans say the most famous parrot of them all was Alex the African Grey. He had a vocabulary of 150 words and could form concepts. Here's Alex on a NOVA report identifying colors and shapes.
0: Can you tell me what's different? Color. Alright. Can you tell me what's same? Shape. Good
28: boy.
1: When Alex died in 2007, he was so well known that he got obits in the New York Times and The Economist. Across town from the park, in his cluttered lab on the UTRGB campus, Berg admires the legendary Alex. Parrots in general are considered to be the most complex of non-human vocal imitators. But Berg is taking a different approach than measuring the intelligence of talking parrots. The biologist wants to understand what parrots say when they communicate with each other. That's the sound of a duet of red-crowned parrots. Now here's the same recording at half speed. I ask Berg what he thinks this male and female are communicating. He's pretty sure it has to do with mating behavior. One hypothesis
12: is that the pair is communicating to the other pairs that this is our nest and, and we're serious about it and you know there might be a fight if you want to try and take it from us.
1: Like a couple putting down a, a contract on a house in a neighborhood they really like. That's right. That's right. <laughs> The red-crowned parrot is so adored here that Brownsville has made it the official city bird. You see them all over the valley, in the trees, feeding on pecans, acorns, and palm nuts. We're back in Olaveta Park with Jasmine Barrientos, a high school biology teacher and a graduate student who's researching the parrot under Carl Berg.
33: I've grown up with these parrots, and they would hang out in our backyard and eat whatever they wanted to because my grandma had a huge garden.
1: One of the serious threats to the species is people stealing nestlings to sell into the pet trade. It continues today.
33: Growing up, I would see neighbors trying to catch them. The way that they would do it would be like with a hose, and they'd hose them down, and then with a towel, like, run and grab them. And um,
3: it's heartbreaking.
1: Here at the Avian Ecology Lab in South Texas, the researchers believe the more we learn about the intelligent and charismatic red-crowned parrot, the easier it is to protect this bird for all time. John Burnett, NPR News, Brownsville.
8: Actor Ray Liotta, who rocketed to film stardom in Goodfellas, has died in his sleep at a hotel in the Dominican Republic where he was filming a movie. He was 67. NPR's Bob Mondello offers this
29: remembrance. Few actors have ever been offered a better opening line for their star-making role.
11: As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster.
29: Ray Liotta slamming the trunk shut on what we'd later learn was evidence of just how gangster he'd become. Those steely blue eyes, the intensity that made him terrifying even when he was terrified, all there in that very first shot. To me, being a
11: gangster was better than being President of the United States. Even before I first wandered into the cab stand for an after-school job, I knew I wanted to be a part of them, it was there that I knew that I belonged.
29: Goodfellas made Leota a star, but he'd been getting noticed for almost a decade at that point, first in television, then in Something Wild, where he played a vengeful husband. You gotta fight for a woman like this.
11: I don't have to fight you, Ray. Right? I'm gonna take
10: Lulu. We're gonna waltz right out of here and there's not a damn thing you can do.
11: <laughs>
29: Absolutely terrifying. Then in Field of Dreams as the baseball legend Shoeless Joe Jackson.
11: Put one right here, huh?
4: Right. You're a low ball hitter. And I did love
29: this game. And then, Goodfellas. For a while after that film, he turned down tough guy roles because he didn't want to be typecast, going for parts like the Devoted Dad in Corinna, Corinna, opposite Whoopi Goldberg. But soon enough, he was playing ex-cons, rogue cops, and at one point, a bribe-taking Justice Department official who shares a harrowingly memorable meal with Hannibal Lecter, not knowing it's his own flesh that's frying in the Silence of the Lamb sequel, Hannibal.
11: That smells great. Yes. Yeah.
29: Yeah. Ray Liotta was by all accounts a nice guy, not at all like many of the parts he played, and with more than a hundred roles to his credit, it would be hard to say he was ever in a career slump, but his career had definitely been experiencing a renaissance of late, and if that first line in Goodfellas was in any way his watch cry, he was still living that gangster dream. A harrowing role in last year's Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, and just on the verge of executive producing a gangland documentary series. He was in in short, still in his prime, and a good fella to the last. I'm Bob Mandela.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth, investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft, at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are on the road in Chicago for Game 3 of a three-game set with the White Sox tonight. And Fenway Park will try again this year to host its first-ever college football bowl game. Today, Fenway Sox uh, Sports Management and ESPN Events announced the 2022 Wasabi Fenway Bowl. It'll be held December 17th at the park. The inaugural event last year was canceled because many players had COVID. This year's bowl game will be a matchup between the American Athletic Conference and the Atlantic Coast Conference. This is WBUR.
7: Look for clouds tonight. Lows about 60. More clouds tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth.
5: I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: On Capitol Hill, top Democrats are pushing Republicans to embrace gun reform after the killing of 19 children in Texas.
5: Putting yourself in the shoes of these parents instead of in the arms of the NRA might free you to act on even a simple measure.
0: It's Thursday, May 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas has renewed calls to ban assault-style weapons.
12: We don't let people buy hand grenades. We don't let people buy bazookas and other instruments of war.
0: More on that and other measures a safety experts say could prevent future school shootings coming up. We're now learning the names of the victims of the mass shooting that took place in the fourth grade classroom, and a little bit more about who the victims are. These stories and much more still ahead, it's 6.01.
32: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. State law enforcement officials in Texas are defending the response to a school shooting in Uvalde. Some members of the community have said police should have stopped the gunman sooner. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports.
35: Officials say it took about an hour for police to stop an 18-year-old gunman who entered Robb Elementary School. In that time, the shooter killed 21 people, 19 fourth-grade students and two adults. Victor Escalon with the Texas Department of Public Safety told reporters there was no police officer at the school when the gunman entered. Some family members of the victims have since come forward to say police should have entered the school sooner. Escalon said it's too early in the investigation to tell whether that could have been possible.
4: Once we interview all those officers, what they were thinking, what they did, why they did it, the video, the residual interviews, we'll have a better idea.
35: Escalon says because Uvalde is a small town, it takes longer to get help in situations like Tuesday's shooting. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Uvalde.
32: President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will travel to Uvalde this weekend to console families and honor the victims of the Texas school shooting. The White House confirming today the Bidens will visit Sunday to, quote, grieve with a community that lost 21 lives in the horrific shooting at Robb Elementary School. A U.S. congressional delegation has been holding talks with Ukraine on the situation in Odessa, where Russian warships have effectively blockaded the country's main port. NPR's Greg Meirey reports Ukraine's economy depends heavily on exporting farm products from Odessa.
20: The three House Republicans say Ukrainian officials are stressing the critical importance of reopening Odessa on the Black Sea. Representative Brian Fitzpatrick is from Pennsylvania.
11: That is the ingress egress point. For Ukrainian commerce. Um, it's the the lion's share of their economy can be accounted for
20: down at that port. Ukraine is one of the world's largest growers of wheat, corn, and barley, and many developing countries depend on these exports. Ukraine still controls Odessa, but Russian warships in the Black Sea have kept commercial ships from coming or going. The U.S. is looking to help Ukraine, saying the port's closure poses a threat to global food supplies. Greg Myrie, NPR News, On
32: Wall Street, stocks took a solid bounce. Here's NPR's David Gura.
5: Macy's did better than Wall
32: Street expected
5: in the first quarter, and so did Williams-Sonoma, a contrast to what we saw last week from Walmart and Target. Dollar Tree and Dollar General forecast even stronger sales in the months to come because of economic uncertainty and high inflation. Tech stocks, including Apple and Meta, Facebook's parent company, also traded higher. Wall Street is on track to end the week in positive territory for the first time in a while. The Dow has fallen for the last eight weeks, and the Nasdaq and the S&P the last seven. David Gurra, NPR News, New York. The Dow was up 516 points. The Nasdaq rose 305 points.
32: This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA Board of Directors has approved the agency's 9.6 billion dollar five-year capital plan. It includes upgrades to vehicles and infrastructure. The plan also funds more than 450 projects aimed at making the transit system safer. WBR's Daryl C. Murphy has more.
27: The board's approval comes as the Federal Transit Administration is inspecting the T over safety concerns. A number of incidents over the last several months have resulted in injuries or death. General Manager Steve Poptak says investigators are conducting site visits and the T is open to their feedback.
1: This is really an opportunity for us as an organization to learn and to get a thorough assessment of the places where we may be doing well in terms of safety. But I think more importantly, the places where we have a deficit.
27: Poptak says a report from the FTA's inspection is likely to come during the summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy.
0: Police say a Haverhill High School student was arrested today. The school was put on shelter-in-place mode after police got a report that the student was making threats and may have been armed. Investigators found the student and say there was no weapon. The school day continued after the arrest. Police have not said if the student has been charged. A Springfield man has been arrested on charges of building AR-15 ghost guns in his home. Ghost guns are made with components that make them untraceable. The Hampton District Attorney says 38-year-old Joshua Buffum made an AR-15 and was in the process of making three more. Prosecutors also say he had a 3-D printer to turn semi-automatic guns into fully automatic weapons. He has pleaded not guilty and is being held on $2,500 bail. And a July 4th tradition will return to Boston for the first time since 2019. Today, the Boston Pops announced its annual Concert and Fireworks Spectacular will be held on the Esplanade this year. The event was canceled in 2020 because of the pandemic. Last year, it was held at Tanglewood in the Berkshires. In the forecast, look for clouds moving in overnight tonight and lows just about 60 degrees. More clouds tomorrow should reach 81 degrees. And then for the weekend Saturday, some showers, highs about 78. Sunshine returns on Sunday about 78
7: again. 66 degrees now in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Croc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha
8: Pfeiffer in Washington.
9: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're still learning the names of the victims of the mass shooting that took place in a fourth-grade classroom in Uvalde, Texas, on Tuesday. And piece by piece, we're learning a little bit more about who they were, what they liked to do, who they loved, and who loved them. We're going to take the next few minutes to say their names out loud and share some small details about each of them. 44-year-old Eva Mareles was one of two fourth-grade
8: teachers who died. She's remembered as an adventurous and loving mother and wife.
9: Mareles shared a classroom with Irma Garcia. The mother of four had taught at the school for 23 years. One of her students, 10-year-old Javier Lopez, was described by his family as a very bubbly boy who loved dancing with his brothers and his mom. He was looking forward to a summer of swimming. Alexandria Ania Rubio
8: was 10 and a straight-A student. A photo of her beaming as she holds up her honor roll certificate was shared on Facebook by her mother. Her mother also posted that she had no
9: idea when she dropped her little girl off on Tuesday
8: that it would be a final goodbye.
9: The grandfather of Uzaya Garcia called the eight-year-old the sweetest little boy that I have ever known. Grandfather and grandson had spent the summer together learning to play football, Layla Salazar, loved to swim and dance to TikTok videos, her father said. Each day on the way to school, the pair of them would listen to Sweet Child O' Mine by Guns N' Roses. The family of Amari Jo
8: Garza says she was a happy kid. She had just turned 10 and made the honor roll. She was also an artist who liked to draw and paint and sculpt with clay. Her grandmother said whenever she saw
9: flowers, she would draw them. Ellie Garcia, also 10 loved to dance, play sports, and spend time with her family. Firecracker is the word Jackie
8: Cazares' family used to describe the nine-year-old. She had a voice, they said, and didn't like bullies, and she didn't like kids being picked on. Her second cousin and good friend, Annabel
9: Rodriguez, was also killed. J.C. Carmela Luivanos and Helia Nicole Silguero died alongside each other. They were cousins. Kalia's mother told Univision that she did not want to go to school Tuesday and seemed to sense something bad was going to happen. Those are just some of the names of the people shot and killed at Robb Elementary
8: School on Tuesday.
9: Nineteen children and two teachers dead after a gunman opens fire in what was supposed to be a safe place. What can be done? Many Americans are asking themselves that very question in the wake of the mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. But despite broad support for measures like background checks and red flag laws, action at the state and federal levels is far from certain. Even Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who represents the community devastated by the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012, admits that it's going to be difficult to pass meaningful gun control.
24: We're trying to figure out a process by which over the next week, Republicans and Democrats, a group of us, can sit down and try to hammer out a compromise. I will tell you, I think the chances are, you know, well less than 50-50 that we will find that compromise.
9: Joining us now to discuss the political stumbling blocks that keep gun legislation from passing are NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason and Texas newsroom reporter Julian Aguilar. Hey to both of you. Happy to be here.
10: Thanks for having me on.
9: Julian. I want to start with you. Um... In the wake of what happened in Uvalde, what kinds of conversations about gun control are you hearing right now in Texas?
10: The conversations are predictable, and I say that because it's similar to what happened after previous mass shootings, including the 2019 shooting in El Paso, which I covered. Democrats immediately call for gun control, and Republicans say that if the legislature passes more strict gun laws than they're hurting, law-abiding citizens. Uh, just listen to what the state's Attorney General Ken Paxton said on Fox News yesterday.
11: There is a law against murder. He's not going to follow a single gun law if he's willing to violate a murder law.
10: And yesterday during a press conference to give more details on the shooting Governor Greg Abbott pointed out Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles cities that have tougher gun laws on the books but laws that he says doesn't work and that's why he said Texas doesn't need more gun laws. Abbott focused on problems with mental health during the press conference problems with access to it in Uvalde. This is what he said yesterday.
12: Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period.
10: It's important to note that at the same time, Abbott pointed out that the gunman did not have mental health issues as far as he knew. And after the El Paso shooting, Abbott's focus on mental health got pushback from mental health experts who said that's not the sole issue that's to blame.
9: I mean, after previous mass shootings in Texas, can you talk about what the movement for gun control has looked like in your state? Like, how has that movement evolved?
10: It, you know, it, it's, it's evolved over time, but um, again, there's been little done at the legislature. So last uh, June, Governor Abbott signed seven laws that expanded gun rights actually. Um, this was just after the El Paso Walmart shooting and the one in Odessa a few weeks later. So those two shootings were claimed about 30 lives. And one of the laws that the governor signed was um, a, a law that allows people to carry, legally carry handguns without licenses. And Abbott said that then at the time that Texas will always be a leader in defending the second amendment. After the Santa Fe school shooting, which happened in 2018 and left 10 people dead, Abbott called on state lawmakers to consider a red flag law that would allow state courts to take away firearms from people who are a danger to themselves or others. Um, And eventually he backed away. Uh, The legislature did pass laws that were more focused on mental health resources and giving teachers more access to guns on public school campuses. And just after the Uvalde shooting, you know, the lieutenant governor instead, he told Fox News that maybe it would stop someone if the targets were hardened, like if schools had just one door. So, I mean, in the aftermath, you know, gun control legislation can't even be passed in Texas until January 2023. That's when the state legislature gavels back in for their regular session. That's unless the governor calls a special session for gun control, which he likely won't.
9: And Mara, I want to bring you in here now, because when it comes to federal gun control legislation, what have been the hurdles in the senate the hurdles in the senate are simple
13: math if you don't have 10 republicans you're not going to pass anything and in the past Uh, Even the most sincere bipartisan efforts like the one that Pat Toomey and uh, Joe Manchin tried to pass the most incremental kinds of reform like background checks have failed. So Democrats say, why would it be different this time if it wasn't different after Sandy Hook or Parkland or El Paso? So Democrats are pretty pessimistic, even though there is yet another bipartisan effort underway right now, this time with Republican Susan Collins of Maine and Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut. Uh, And what's happened since the last time the Senate tried and failed is that guns have become even more entrenched as the bedrock part of the Republican base identity. In other words, for white rural Republican voters, other than maybe abortion and the big lie, I can't think of a single issue that's more central to their partisan identity than Mm. the Second Amendment. Now, Joe Biden argued the other day the Second Amendment is not absolute. And it's true. We already have gun control in this country. You can't go out and buy a machine gun, a fully automatic weapon. Uh, So we have gun control. We're just arguing about how much of it we want.
9: Okay, so I get that the second amendment is central to the Republican identity, but aren't they facing any kind of pressure to do something on gun control? Well, maybe, but remember Republicans
13: are relatively insulated from majority public opinion, especially on this issue. You know, 80 of voters tell pollsters they're for background checks. 67% of voters say they're for an assault weapons ban. But because we have a system that advantages minority rule in the United States Senate, Republicans don't really have to cater to that majority opinion. You know, the Senate is an institution that was designed by the founders to protect the minority party's rights. But over time, because of the way the population has sorted itself out, we pretty much have minority rule. Right now, 50 Democrats in the Senate represent 44 million more people than the 50 Republicans. And that means that Republicans really don't run any political risk for voting against popular gun control measures.
9: Well, if Senate Democrats are unable to pass anything, I mean, what can Democrats do outside of the legislative process?
13: Well, there might be some more executive orders that the president can sign. What Democrats say they don't want to do is just give in and give up. That's why that onion headline is so powerful. You know, the satirical magazine, quote, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Uh, Democrats Hmm. say even if you can't pass something, it's worth advocating for it, fighting for it, bringing things to the floor to force Republicans to say they're against universal background checks. And there are a lot of Democrats who actually think guns are a cultural issue, the rare cultural issue that can work for Democrats, because majorities of Americans are for these gun control measures. Well, Julian, when it
9: comes to Texas specifically, historically, what have attitudes towards gun control been like, according to polls?
10: Right. Well, polling shows that the Texans' opinions vary depending on, on the type of gun in question. So, Overall, generally, about 43% of people said uh, gun laws should be more strict, and that's according to a Texas politics poll by the University of Texas that was uh, released in February of this year, and that number is down over the last few years. Um, You know, for example, in 2017, it was 51%, and if you break it down by party, it's pretty predictable. Democrats say gun laws should be more strict, you know, more than 80%, while um, only about uh, 12% of Republicans say the same thing. Um, and the poll last year uh, the Texas Tribune University of Texas conducted showed that a solid majority of Texas voters, 59 percent, uh, didn't think adults should be allowed to carry handguns. Uh, so that specifically dealt with handguns. But long rifles uh, have been legal to, to purchase and carry without a permit in Texas for decades now. So that's where this, the split is, is depending on what type of gun it is.
9: That was Texas Newsroom reporter Julian Aguilar and NPR national political correspondent Mara Leis, And thank you to both of you. Thank
19: you. Thank you.
8: With the grocery store, the gas station, and just affording a place to live, Americans are feeling the pinch of rising prices basically everywhere. Now the Federal Reserve is trying to cool inflation, but without chilling the whole economy. How to understand inflation in the U.S.? This afternoon on NPR's Daily News Podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on All Things Considered, big issues on the Supreme Court's agenda: abortion, guns, and religion. Nina Totenberg's report coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. An upswing for the markets today on Wall Street. The Dow rose for a fifth straight day, up more than one and a half percent, or 517 points, to close at 32,637. SP and p brought in nearly two percent to close at 4,058. The Nasdaq surged nearly two and three quarters percent to close at 11,741.
7: It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Also in business today, just over 4,000 people filed new claims
0: for unemployment last week. That's down just over 1% from the week before. That mirrors a trend nationally. Economists say those levels of new claims are relatively low and reflect strong job security. In the forecast overnight tonight, clouds move in, should stick around for tomorrow and for Saturday. Tonight's low is about 60. Tomorrow should reach 81. About 78 on Saturday. Sunshine should return on Sunday. This is WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th or June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmers market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers to slash WBUR.
0: You are part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Tuesday, June 7th at 8.30 a.m. Details at WBUR.org slash open meetings.
34: Americans really eat a weird set of foods.
2: And some of those foods contribute to climate change. But our choices can make a difference.
34: What we found with that one single substitution, it dropped that person's dietary carbon footprint by
2: 48%. WBUR's new newsletter, Cooked, can help you help the planet from your kitchen table. Whether you're omnivore, vegan, or somewhere in between. To sign up,
9: go to WBUR.org slash Cooked. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Since
8: a draft of the decision that could overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked earlier this month, it's easy to forget that a decision has not yet, in fact, been rendered from the Supreme Court, and that there are a slate of other decisions, including on gun regulations, likely to come down soon. One person well-tuned into the Supreme Court, as always, is our legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. Hi, Nina. Hi, there. What gun case or cases are before
6: the court? The court said 13 years ago that, as a citizen, you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. The question in this terms case is whether you have a right to carry a gun outside your home. At issue in the case is a New York law that restricts licenses to carry a gun outside the home to people going hunting or shooting or to those who can demonstrate a special need for self-protection, like a messenger carrying cash. Most states don't have such strict laws, but still, some 80 million people do live in states that, like New York, limit concealed carry licenses. And at the oral arguments, it looked as though the conservative majority very likely will strike down the New York law. Nina, how did the court get here? Well, just to recap a little history here. In 2008, the Supreme Court ruled for the first time that the Second Amendment right to bear arms guarantees the right to have a gun in your home. But after that, for all practical purposes, when it came to gun regulation, it was crickets at the court. The justices refused to hear almost all the cases brought by gun rights advocates. Was there a reason for that? Well, at that point, the justices were closely divided on these questions, and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who had provided the fifth and decisive vote in 2008, was generally in favor of reasonable gun regulations, and for all I know, Chief Justice Roberts may have been too. But now Kennedy has retired, and there's a six-justice supermajority on the court, meaning that the conservatives can lose one vote and still prevail. What's more, the three Trump appointees, when they were lower court judges, were generally sympathetic to the arguments put forth by gun rights advocates. And this term, we may see just how sympathetic. Nina, turning back to this term's Roe v. Wade abortion decision, what do we know today about where it is? Well, as you well know, all signs are that the court is on the verge of overturning Roe, and if it does do that, abortions will almost certainly become illegal in about half the country immediately, or close to immediately. Justice Alito's draft dated February 10th and its unprecedented leak earlier this month tell that story quite vividly. But word is that there has not been a subsequent opinion circulated or at least not as of a week or two ago, which suggests that Chief Justice Roberts is likely writing a competing draft and that the other members of the conservative wing in deference to him are waiting to see that before they commit themselves formally to all of Alito's language. Are there any major cases that are less high profile that you're waiting to hear about? Well, there are a couple of huge regulatory cases, maybe the most significant in terms of climate change, is a case that essentially tests whether the Environmental Protection Agency can create a plan of regulations and incentives aimed at reducing carbon emissions from coal-fired plants under the Clean Air Act. And there are also a couple of important religion cases. The most prominent was brought by a high school football coach who claims he has the right to pray on the 50-yard line at school. And there are a couple of important immigration cases, both brought by some Republican states seeking to keep in place Trump administration regulations that the Biden administration has moved to revoke. Do you have any sense of when these other decisions may come down? Nope. Just by the end of the term, which usually is pretty much at the beginning of full-fledged summer. (laughs) NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thank you. Thank you. Newtown,
9: Parkland, Santa Fe, and now Uvalde. There are striking similarities among all of these school shootings, and after every one of them, there has been a tendency to ask, how do we prevent the next one? Well, as NPR's Corey Turner
16: reports, for years, school safety experts have been pretty clear on the answers. Matthew Mayer has been studying school violence since before Columbine. He's part of a big group of researchers who started putting out position papers back in 2006 about why school shootings happen. The question today, Mayor says, is not why, it's... Do we want to change? Or
12: is this acceptable to us? and we have to start being more honest with ourselves.
16: For Mayer, a professor at Rutgers, that honesty has to begin with gun safety policy. There's a broad consensus from school safety experts that arming teachers is not good policy. Mayer and his colleagues have called for universal background checks and banning assault style weapons. We don't let
12: people buy hand grenades. We don't let people buy
16: bazookas and other instruments of war. In its own report on school shootings, the US Secret Service also flagged the importance of gun storage safety. In half the shootings they studied, the gun used was either readily accessible at home or not really secured. Now to the things researchers say schools can actually control. There's been a lot of movement in recent years toward hardening schools, like adding police officers and metal detectors, but Otis Johnson Jr who heads the Center for Safe and Healthy Schools at Johns Hopkins says schools should focus on softening.
17: Our first preventative strategy should be to make sure kids are respected, that they feel connected and belong in schools.
16: That means being truly responsive to the social and emotional needs of students, working to build kids skills around conflict resolution, stress management, and empathy for their classmates.
18: These are things that we learn, And if your parents didn't have these skills and tools or all of them, you can't give what you don't have.
16: Scarlett Lewis founded Choose Love for Schools after the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School 10 years ago. Choose Love is a social emotional curriculum being used in thousands of schools. I interviewed her back in 2019, and she told me how much she loves working with kids to build kinder, safer schools.
18: When I was handing out bracelets and I said, what's your favorite character value? And they said, without hesitation, forgiveness. And I'm like, really? Why forgiveness? Because you can let it go. Because it feels good.
16: The idea is these skills can help reduce all sorts of unwanted behaviors, including fighting and bullying. In its report, the Secret Service found most of the school attackers they studied had been bullied. Jackie Nowicki, has led multiple school safety investigations at the Government Accountability Office. And she says her team found a few things closely linked to making school environments safer.
19: Anti-bully training for staff and teachers, adult supervision, things like hall monitors, and mechanisms to anonymously report hostile behaviors.
16: The Secret Service, as well as school safety experts, also recommend schools implement what they call a threat assessment model, where a team of trained staff, including an administrator, a counselor, or school psychologist, and a law enforcement representative work together to identify and support students in crisis before they hurt others. Which reminds me of something Scarlett Lewis told me back in 2019.
18: There are only
16: two kinds of people in the world, good people, and good people in pain. And from Lewis, that's a powerful thing to say. Her six year old son, Jesse, was murdered alongside many of his classmates at Sandy Hook Elementary. Corey Turner, NPR News.
8: This is
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are on the road in Chicago. Michael Walker pitches in the third and final game of the series with the White Sox. Meanwhile, back in Boston tonight, the Red Sox will induct more members into their Hall of Fame at a ceremony at Fenway. The inductees are Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, and Worcester native and former catcher and coach Rich Gedman. Also being inducted are former general manager Dan Duquette and early 20th century pitcher Bill Deneen. This is WBUR. It's 630.
8: Win a farm share from Sienna Farms or a Sunbug solar installation in the WBUR Gala auction. Bid now at wbur.org/gala.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with extended summer hours. Events, book recommendations, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com.